Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is uh, Tim, and uh, let me pray for us before we jump into that text. Uh, our good Father, uh, would you show us your ways and teach us your paths? And I pray you would use my words to do just that. Uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I ask these things. Amen. Well, last week, I shared a statistic with you that one million millennials leave the church each year. And my response to that is, is grief and sadness, but also a desire to understand why. What is, what is happening? Your response might be to that, what is a millennial? And uh, last week, as I said, it's, it's anyone born between the early 1980s uh, and the mid-1990s. And so I even gave you an illustration of the book-ended millennials. So I am the elder end of the millennial age, born in the early 80s. And Evan Dewey, our director of student ministries, is the baby millennial among us, uh, born in the mid-1990s. So it's anyone kind of in that, that age range of mid-20s to early 40s. And one million people... Uh, like me, or like Evan, or in between, leave the church every year. And this is the way that sociologist Stephen Bolivant describes this time we're living in, in his book, Nonverts. He writes, The USA is in the midst of a social, cultural, and religious watershed. One that today's Americans are not merely living through, but millions have actively lived out in their own stories. This shift, while in many, not all, cases, a very gradual one from the perspective of an individual lifetime, has manifested itself at the national level very swiftly indeed. I hope you heard that. We're, we're living through a watershed moment of people leaving faith in Jesus. And so a year ago, as John mentioned, uh, we began our Gather initiative. It's a two-year ministry initiative here in Liberty that's focused on four things. Gathering ourselves before God, uh, gathering together as one church, gathering the next generation, and gathering those not yet gathered. And behind these four themes, ultimately, is our desire to lay a foundation of ministry here at Liberty that will be our response to the watershed moment that you and I are living through. That we want to be a church that's asking, why have so many left? But more specifically, why have so many of the kids we raised in church left? And so this morning we're going to talk about our, our third priority together in this Gather Initiative. Being a church that seeks to gather the next generation. Because however we answer the question, why are so many people like me, like Evan, leaving the church, the answer we can definitely give is that we as a church have not properly handed the gospel off to my generation. 
And I think I've, I've done the work in studies of understanding why, but also my experience lines up with the studies. Decisions we made as a church, or churches, or the American church, that I think has led to our watershed moment. And so I don't want this to be true of liberty, that many of the kids we're raising in church now aren't with us in 20, 25 years. So how do we become a church that gathers the next generation? Well, that's, that's the heart of this morning's sermon, the heart of the Gather Initiative. And so here's where, where I'll start this morning. Gathering the next generation means living a compelling alternative way of life. And we don't have our, our slides are down, so I'll say that again so you don't, you don't miss it. Gathering the next generation requires us as Christians living a compelling alternative way of life. Now I started with some depressing stats, so let me, let me encourage you, hopefully. And that is to be a Christian, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have joined the most incredible movement in world history. We are the only multi-ethnic religious movement that exists with significant followers on every continent, which happened not through violence or coercion, but happened in spite of violence done against the early Christians. And despite of all that, we are the ones that came up with the ideas of hospitals and schools, caring for the poor, people of different ethnicities living together in deep fellowship and community, the idea of religious freedom, human rights, all of these ideas came from Christians, and I wish I had the idea to, at the time to defend that case. I can't, but if you think I'm wrong, let's talk. We'll grab coffee. Those are all Christian ideas. And it's why the early church grew so rapidly despite persecution and opposition. They lived into what Jesus said his disciples should live into in Matthew 5, what David read for us. That we'd be salt in a decaying world, preservative in a world that seems to always be falling apart. They believed that if they obeyed the teachings of Jesus, they'd be a city on the hill. You'd be wandering around in darkness, and then you'd see light, and, and, and it would mean refuge and safety if you walked towards the light. To follow Jesus would, would, be a, would draw people to the living God. And so as Christians went about their normal lives, in their apartment complexes, in their workplaces, in their neighborhoods, with their families, they lived a compelling alternative way of life. And when they did, people were drawn to the living God. So let me unpack what I mean by that. Both compelling and an alternative way of life. The first, my belief, is that a Christian way of life is compelling. You read the history of the early church, and in a culture of violence... Christians committed to, to loving their enemies. The most quoted Bible verse among the early Christians. Love your enemies. That was their gospel. In a culture of dehumanization, Christians adopted orphans and refused to practice abortion. Refused to attend gladiatorial games where human death was celebrated. In a culture of pride and power, Christians prized patience with those who disagreed with them in humility. And in a culture of male dominance and male abuse of children and females, Christian men kept their marriage bed pure and their vows to their wives and treated the littlest among them with kindness. And in a culture that ignored the poor, wealthy Christians were outrageously generous. 
Just imagine you're walking about Rome first century and you meet a person who loved their enemies, who gave a significant amount of their time to orphan care, who was patient and humble. Imagine meeting a man who didn't dehumanize the women around him, but saw them as his equals, listened to their voice, honored their personhood. Imagine meeting someone who was so generous to others, they gave so much of their income away it felt borderline irresponsible. Or imagine meeting someone like that today. And this is how the early Christian Justin Martyr described to a non-Christian why so many of their people, the non-Christians, were becoming Christian. This is what he he wrote. Many who were once on your side, who were non-Christians, have turned from the ways of violence and tyranny, overcome by observing the consistent lives of their Christian neighbors, or noting the strange patience of their injured acquaintances, or experiencing the way they did business with them. Would someone come to Christ because of the way you did business with them? Would someone describe your life as strangely patient? That when others injured you, you respond with kindness and humility? Would someone say of you, there's no violence, no anger in that person's life? It was compelling. And Romans became Christians in absurdly high numbers because of it. The second uh, phrase, alternative way of life. Um, listen to how the, uh, this, uh, this epistle to Diognetus, uh, it's an early document. We don't know who wrote it, but it's describing how the early Christians lived. And this is what was written. Uh, they marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy the offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. This is not just being Roman with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. It's like being a Christian doesn't mean you're an American with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top. In a culture of violence, they were peacemakers. In a culture of anger, they practiced love. This was a totally different way of life, and it was compelling. And so just a a quick pause and a plug. This is one reason why I think it's so important to know church history. That as Christians, we are joining something incredible. And so I I invite you, you need to know church history. My favorite church history prof in seminary said, most Christians think uh, church history started with Jesus, uh, then went to Paul, then went to Billy Graham, and now it's me. (laughs) And there's a lot in between Paul and Billy Graham. Uh, And so actually starting January uh, 14th, next Sunday, Brian O'Neill, our pastor of teaching, is going to be doing a Sunday school class in our first hour on church history. And that may sound boring to you, but I hope what I just shared with you is anything but. Who are these people? (laughs) We should know them, that we live like them as they live like Jesus. 
So we hope you'll think about uh, that, whether you're middle school, high school, uh, senior high, seniors, uh, we need to know our church history. But back to my question, why, why are so many people living the church? And here's my answer underneath what I'm saying. We have lived too much like the world. And it's not been compelling, and many have left. And there's a book that details some of this. It's called The Great Dechurching. A book was written to understand the question I'm asking now. Why have so many people in their mid-20s to early 40s left the church? So this book is the conclusions of a multi-year massive study of people who have left the church in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And what comes out again and again in this book is that the church has lived like the world and so people have left. And they cite a couple of examples that that live at the top of the list. I'll name one next week, but I'm going to name another one this morning. Uh, Two of the top reasons people have have left the church through the way they experience Christians, one of the top two reasons is the way the church has engaged in politics over the last few years. Oh boy. Politics and Jesus. Let's all take a deep breath. Breathe in with me. And breathe out. Okay, here we go. It's one thing to be political. Jesus claimed to be a king. We are a political movement. And so to be political is the best we can to try to vote along the lines of what we believe Jesus values and cares about. That's good. But there's tension here because following Jesus has political implications. He is a king, which means a Christian who would say, Jesus has no implications for my politics, is incorrect. He is a king. It's one thing to be political, to have political values. It's another to be partisan. And to place partisan political allegiance over our discipleship to Jesus and his kingdom. Here's what I mean. To be partisan is to treat political people with views different than us, with harsh language, calling them evil, or living in anger towards them. To be partisan is to give excuses for obviously terrible behavior of politicians on our side of the political aisle. Politicians who habitually lie, who use harsh, hateful, and mocking language, who traffic in hating their political enemies and encourage us to do the same. To be partisan is to refuse to name what that is, wicked and evil, but instead make excuses for it. Some Christians even celebrating it. Celebrating people with obviously wicked character only because they share our partisan political views. And when I engage people of my own generation and why they've left the church, politics always comes up, especially in the last four to five years. But it's not primarily my values as a Christian that comes up. I peer people who have left the church shocked at how Christians have acted in the political world, the way they spoke and acted as Christians, the way Christians celebrated politicians with obviously wicked character, Christians who appear to act just like how the rest of the world acts in politics. It's not compelling, nor is it an alternative way of life. And it has driven many out of the church. But what if instead we Christians held deep convictions 
about the political implications of Jesus' message while also being people of deep love for our enemies. Incredible kindness towards those who disagree with us that we honor and pray for those who do not hold the political views. That we gauge in the public sphere with kindness, love, and gentleness. Or that we just obey the teachings of Jesus. That would be another way of putting it. That if Christians acted like that in our political moments, we would appear to be from a different planet. Our culture would seek, see our love and kindness in this political sphere and ask, what planets are you from? And we could tell them, planet Jesus, and it's way more fun than your planet politics. Because it is. And so I hope we live compelling alternative life, the way we live out our political beliefs, as we seek to apply them into our current cultural moment. Let's seek to live compelling lives, an alternative way of life, that your light would shine before others, and they would see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, but all that raises the question, well, how, how do we become people who resist our cultural way of living and live a compelling alternative way of life in the way of Jesus? How do we, as Paul put it, be transformed by the renewing of our minds? Conformed not to the image of this world, but to the image of our God. So the second thing I want to put on the table for this morning is that living a compelling alternative way of life requires intentional discipleship. And I love the way the early church uh, did this. And the way the early church did this was something called the catechumenate, which is a great word, the catechumenate. And I know you're asking, what is the catechumenate? And I'm glad you asked. Uh, what it was was a one- to two-year process where the church would move you from being a non-Christian to a baptized believer in the way of Jesus. And a few things happened in that one- to two years. First, you were invited to leave the story of Rome and live the story of the Bible. The expectation was that you would go and listen to the teachings of local pastors for a good length of time. Because Rome had a story they had encouraged you to live into. A story with gladiatorial games, with temples, with beliefs about Caesar, the Senate, the gods. And you had to unlearn all of that. And know and live instead the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of Jeremiah, of Isaiah. And of course, Jesus and his way and his teachings. So for one to two years, you unlearned the story of Rome. And you learned the story of God. The second thing is you were invited into a depth of community to be known in order to be changed. That every person in the catechumenate had a sponsor, a Christian who would walk through the whole process with them, spending an inordinate amount of time with you, listening to you, praying for you, helping explain whatever the confusing pastors were talking about. They supported you, they walked alongside you, and they loved you. Thirdly, you were invited to leave the practices of Rome and take up the practices of Jesus. So every person in the catechumenate learned how to pray, learned how to read their, the Bible or study the Bible because many of them didn't have copies at this point. They were taught how to visit the poor, how to care for widows and orphans. And for two years, the church deconstructed your habits of Rome from attending the games and the temples 
to attending to the presence of God and His work and His kingdom through Jesus in this world. And fourth, you were taught how to live as a faithful, compelling witness in your workplace, neighborhood, and family. This is actually where the sign of the cross originated. Um, you know, those, those, some of you I see do this from time to time, but um, there are Christians who will do the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and I'm pretty sure I got it wrong, so please don't hold that against me. But the idea was that I'm going out into the world, this is my breastplate, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and now I'm God's witness into his world. And you were taught that sign in the catechumenate because you were going into a world to represent Jesus and you needed protection against an evil world as you sought to bear witness to Jesus to your neighbors, your family members, and co-workers. And the result of all this was a church of compelling disciples who lived an alternative way of life in Rome. And without any violence, without any coercion, the rate of growth in the church was absurd. The number of people who worshipped and followed Jesus because of this. And so what does all this mean for liberty? Well, my burden for our church is is that we not become a church that attracts a crowd to events we do here at Liberty. But I want us to be a community of compelling disciples who live an alternative way of life because our strategy as a church will not be about good programs or good events. It will be about you living a compelling alternative way of life in your neighborhood, your school, your city, your family, and your place of work. And the Gather Initiative is about laying the groundwork for that. And so the first step we're taking as a church, of of many more to come, but the first step is we've got to do that with people in that 18 to 22-year-old window, or maybe 18 to 25-year-old window, with our young adults. And so we're building a residency program with, with two primary outcomes. One, we want to disciple young adults into a compelling alternative way of life. We, we are going to model that after the, the catechumenate, giving them a mentor. If they want to be a lawyer at one day, we believe an older Christian lawyer who attends this church or maybe another church in our area should give an enormous amount of time to them. Teach them how to pray. Teach them how to live as a follower of Jesus in their vocation. Disciple them. Encourage them. Invest in them. If they want to be a woodworker or a carpenter or a plumber or a teacher, whatever it is, we want to pair them up with a Christian much older than them to pour into their life that they know what it means to follow Jesus for the next 20, 30, 40 years of their life. And so that can't just be something that's like a side ministry of the church over in some part of the building. We need every adult in this room to make that happen. The second goal is we want to train the next generation of of church leaders as well. Our hope is to, to work with either a school like Moody or Trinity to partner with those institutions to train the next generation of pastors and church leaders who pastor and lead people into the way of Jesus. We have a responsibility of raising up the next generation of church leaders so that, uh, so that we have leadership on into the future. And so for the last few months, Greg Carter's already begin, begun laying the groundwork for this residency. You'll be hearing more and more about this because this is going to be a core part of, of who we are. But back to my, my question I began with. Okay, why are so many millennials or people mid-20s to early 40s leaving the church? I've given you one answer. We've not always been particularly compelling as a church, especially when it comes to the way we've lived out our politics. But the second thing I want to name uh, this morning is, 
is the church traded intentional discipleship and instead became a religious store of goods and services, which I talked about last week. So I want to end here this morning. Gathering the next generation requires others-centered generosity. And so during, <clears throat> during my undergraduate years in Bible college, I had a, man, it's emotional just seeing this picture up there. Um, I had a mentor professor who gave, uh, uh, took me under his wings. It's Dr. Bob Kirka. And the hours he gave me in his office cannot be counted. The number of dumb things I said as a 19-year-old in his office cannot be counted. But he was patient. And when I said something probably heretical, he was like, that's interesting. I think I know the next book that we'll read together. <laughs> he was generous. He was kind. And we need churches full of people like this if we are going to reach the, new genera- the next generation. But the problem, the problem is this. For the last 30, 40 years, the church has set up a discipleship strategy that completely undermines who Dr. Kirka was to me. And I'll, I'll use Brian O'Neill, our pastor of teaching, who sent me a great text that illustrates uh, this. Uh, throw it up there. This is how the church has been thinking for the last few years. I know it's a little small, but let's create a, a church service for everything people might like. So you need a classic service. We know you get up early if you want that, so it's 8 a.m. If you need a mid-century modern, you know, a little simple, uh, classic, 10 a.m., postmoderns at 11. Millennials, we're at 1 right after we've had our avocado toast and brunch on Sunday. It's a very millennial joke. Thank you for those who laughed. And then, and then a happy hour service at 4 p.m. I don't know what Brian meant by sending this. But it's on the table is all I'm saying from Brian. But my point is we've church, we built a church around these ideas. What, what do you want? And we'll give it to you. And we come to church. What about me? This is what I want. And if you don't give it to me, I'll find another church that will. And pastors like me, we've discipled the church into thinking this way. We've created churches to cater to what you want. And my belief is that's one of the major reasons we failed to reach the next generation. This vision of discipleship is terrible. And there's two reasons why I think it's failed my generation. First, what we told my generation was, you're welcome in church, but not in the sanctuary. So we put another part of the building where you can do your worship. And my entire experience of church in high school was only with other high school students, except for when I made the choice to go with the adults. We were sectioned off from big church because we were too loud, our music was too lively, so we were given a corner of the building where I could play drums as loud as I wanted. Now I'm going to unpack this more next week in the book Sticky Faith, but, or next week in my sermon. But the book Sticky Faith has shown how damaging those decisions have been in handing off the gospel to the next generation. Because if a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 10-year-old cannot walk into this room and feel like this is their room to worship God in, they will not stay in the church in their 20s. And the vast majority of my friends who went to the corner of the building for high school ministry, they walked out the back door when their high school years were were over and they never made it to this room. Because this room said, we don't want you in here. You're too loud. So go to the corner. (laughs) And we did. And then some of us made it 
And now we're being loud in here. I apologize. <laughs> most, most of us left because we were told we were not wanted in here. That's next week's sermon, though. To get back to this week's sermon, too, uh, very few of my friends had people like Dr. Kirka in their life. Someone who, in addition to their parents, gave them an incredible amount of time, energy, love, generosity, to shepherd them into the way of Jesus. But I ask, why would they? Because we made the church the place where we all say, I better get what I want or I'm leaving. The idea that you would give an inordinate amount of time to a 19-year-old when that's the vision of church, it, it will never happen. <laughs> because I can promise you this, no one in this room would have wanted a, a relationship with a 19-year-old version of me. I was arrogant. I thought I knew more than I did. And I believe uh, my conversations with Dr. Kirka eventually in, brought him joy and invigorated him. But I have no doubt there were times he was like, maybe I should cancel today. But he didn't, because his vision of ministry and life was not the discipleship to Jesus. This is what I want. Someone better give it to me. But he said, I've been given so much in Jesus Christ, and now it's time to give it away to the next generation. And there's no way that doesn't require significant time and resources, significant patience, significant financial generosity, opening your life and heart to the next generation. And hear me saying, because of Dr. Kirk's generosity, his generous, other-centered, sacrificial discipleship to Jesus, this former high school drummer, who always had to be told, you're playing too loud, quiet down, in church, will be using my voice for the rest of my days to tell Jesus, to tell people about Jesus until I have no words left to speak. Because a brilliant professor listened to me say crazy things for three years. And kept pointing me back to Jesus. But most of my friends never had that, that experience. Because they grew up in a church built on consumer preference. Give me what I want or I'm leaving. And so in the last 30 years, the church has kept the older generation and lost the next. And so we, the elders, John, myself, I, I recognize what I'm saying is actually much harder <laughs> for you to join than, than if I was up here saying, hey, just tell us what you want and we'll give it to you. We'll find a room where you can worship in that, in that way. Instead, I'm, I'm up here saying, die to yourself. Don't come to church asking, what do I want and what will I be given? Come to church ready to give yourself away in others' sacrificial and generous love. So what does that look like? What am, what am I asking of, of you? Well, three thoughts, then I'll take my seat. First, Give yourself away to the next generation by investing where you already are. Is there someone who is younger in your workplace you could mentor right now? Pour into. Be generous towards. Whether they're a Christian or not, and just give, give them what you have. At some point, they might ask you, why are you doing this? And you can answer, Jesus. Or could your home be the home in the neighborhood that's just open and available, a place of presence to the next generation? Are there neighbor kids you can pour into? Well, have the home with the best games, the best snacks. So when one of those kids comes up and asks you, why do you have an unending supply of Cheetos in this house? 
You can tell them Jesus. <laughs> he wants you to feel welcome in this place. So invite the next... Where are, where are you already? That's the first question. Second, give yourself away to the next generation in this church community. We need a ton of help getting the residency off the ground. We need mentors and business leaders, tradesmen, people who are willing to share their life and vocation with a young adult to help them prepare to be a good worker in the way of Jesus. So reach out. Greg wants you to reach out to him. Reach out to him. Greg Carter. He would love to hear from you. Or, and we'll talk more about this next week as well, give yourself away in children's ministry. One of the best things I've heard from our church in the last few months is there's a family in our church. There's several families in our church who do foster care. There's one family in particular, they have a foster child who has moments of real struggle, struggle uh, to regulate his emotions and feel safe. Which isn't surprising, the world's been harsh to him. And so safety is, is important. And one of the places he feels safest is this church. And do you know why he feels safe? Because every week when he's dropped off in his classroom, the same volunteers are there. And he knows them. And he knows they're safe. And so here's the good news. You don't have to be good at children's ministry to be good at children's ministry. You just have to be there and alive. <laughs> Once a week in a children's class. And you can change the direction of the next generation. We need a ton of volunteers. In a church our size, we should never need volunteers. We need volunteers. We hope you'll ask Mike Akert or Sarah Pluster, how you can help. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But, but, so give yourself away to this community, to where you already are. And then third, give yourself away to the next generation with your financial generosity. So we've said our primary goal through the Gather Initiative is 100% engagement in, in this discipleship journey. It's becoming a house of prayer. And then the Father leading you into a place where he's going to Deepen your love of him and others. So that's the primary goal is where is the Lord calling you to give your life away to others? But the second goal is, is financial, is to, to raise the money necessary to lay the foundation for everything I'm, I'm saying about you. And so last year, uh, through the commitments of, of this congregation and expected gifts, our two-year uh, number was, was $11,413,994 dollars. That's how much generosity was committed to this place. It's incredible. And that means we're able to invest incredibly in the next generation. We're creating a devoted children's wing of our church building with security in a single place of drop-off so kid parents like me don't wander the church trying to figure out where our kids go. We're starting the residency program that I've talked to you about this morning. We're hoping to hire a long-term leader of that residency program to carry that ministry deep into the future. And so we thank you. For those of you who've already made commitments, thank you for your generosity. All those things are possible. And so as we move into to the, we, we want to ask the question around financially. If, if you were here a year ago through all that, we want to invite you into to two possible next steps. First is to invite you uh, to consider to finishing strong. That maybe the last year of this generosity journey has stretched you in ways beyond what you expected. And we want you to keep being invited into that space of being stretched by our God and to, be, and to finish strong in that generosity. Or second, maybe the Lord has been generous to you beyond expectation and you find yourself with the capacity to take another step in your generosity. 
And we'd invite you to pray and consider whether or not that has implications toward increasing your commitment over the next year towards our church family. So that's, we're going to go there, but I'm, I'm just naming that uh, to start. And then, and then there's many of you here who weren't here a year ago. And, and if you are new or, or carry church baggage and starting a relationship of giving with us, that's not something you're ready for, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Take your time. And when you feel comfortable, we're ready to have that conversation. But we would want you to feel comfortable before we'd have the ever, ever the expectation of your generosity. But if you do trust us and are ready to give... We'd invite you to consider making a, a, a commitment for the second year of our Gather initiative from March 1 of 2024 to the end of February 2025. Again, something we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. And I know anytime a pastor talks about money, there are a lot of feelings. And I just want you to know, um, again, if that's not a conversation you're interested in, that's okay. We're just glad that you're here. Um, but I do name those things because I believe financial generosity has significant implications for the next generation for two reasons. One is the advertising industry spends on average $250 billion a year to advertise to teenagers. $250 billion a year to disciple them into consumerism, to convince them to build their lives around their brands and their products. And my question is, if the advertising knows the reward on that investment will be far beyond $250 billion. What are the implications for us as Christians in investing into the next generation with our financial generosity? What should our investment look like if that's the advertising industry's commitment? But second, I believe this conversation is important because of what I've already shared. I would not be here as a disciple of Jesus, without the outrageous generosity of other Christians. And so when I was planning to go to seminary um, and looking at the cost, it was overwhelming. And I prayed for a provision, and God answered. He actually answered my prayer several years before I prayed it, because a Christian man named Bob Kern, who invented a type of generator that made him a lot of money, decided he would give the vast majority of his money away. And a large portion of that generosity went to seminary students, to men and women he would never meet, so that I would not have to pay a dime to go to seminary. So a man I've never met paid for my seminary. That is ridiculous. Unless you know Jesus. Jesus which is a compelling, totally alternative way of life to the way of the world. The only way Bob Kern or Bob Kirka, my mentor, would treat me the way they've treated me is because they tasted of the generosity of God. And when you've been loved by the generous, sacrificial, other-centered love that God has for you, it changes you into a generous, compelling, alternative way of living person. And so this morning as I close, I hope you hear two things. One, the enormous investment that older Christians have given to me, which is why I'm still seeking Jesus all these years later. All the hours that Dr. Kirk gave me, the outrageous generosity Bob Kern shared with me, they are both with Jesus now, but their generosity lives in my bone, and I will use it to pour it back out to the next generation. And two, this is who God is. 
a generous, other-centered, sacrificial being, the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what was happening on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, taking on the hell of earth so that you and I could have the riches of heaven. Taking on the judgment of God so we could live in His unfailing love. What a compelling and generous God who, should we give our life to Him, will make us generous, compelling people. And Let us pray. Father, uh, we, we give You glory that Your generosity towards us is that You gave this world Your only Son, that any who should believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. <laughs> uh, Jesus dies so we can have the riches of eternal life. Help, just let us enter into that truth um, now, that it would change us into being the generous, compelling people that this world needs us to be. I pray this in, in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.